Hey y'all, spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Hello, everyone. It's Takuya here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So I was talking with my sister on the on the phone the other day, and uh, not, you know, in person because she's 3,000 miles away, but um, I was telling her about how well Lukey is doing, and uh, my brother-in-law in the background, she had me on speakerphone, he goes, you adopted another dog? And I said, yeah. And he goes, what's wrong with this one? And he makes a good point. <laughs> you know what? Shut up, Bill. <laughs> Let me see. This guy has alopecia something or other. Alopecia X. X. X, as well as being malnourished and haggis, same deal. Uh, and then he had glaucoma as well. And flea dermatitis. And flea dermatitis. And kidney stones. And Lyme disease. And Lyme disease. Yeah, and we could go on and on and on. Right, I right, mean, right. every single right. dog. Banjo had uh, seizures. Brain lesion. Yeah, it's a good time, you know? And again, it brings us to the question, why do we do this to ourselves? That's stupid. <laughs> but Lukey's doing very well. There's currently a poll on our Patreon about how we should spell his name because it's a big controversy. Lucky's not my favorite dog name, so uh, we thought we would, you know, honor his street cred and keep the name, but spell it differently and pronounce it like the Ecuadorians do. Lukey. Right. So far in the lead is L-U-K-I. Lukey. That's my favorite, too. Yeah, mine, too. This is, believe it or not, our 612th Box of Oddities episode. Wow. Mind-blowing. And over the years, we have often talked about various types of haunting and the differences between an intelligent haunting and a residual haunting. Right. 
An intelligent haunting is exactly what it sounds like. There's some sort of communication or response to questions being asked, uh, EVPs, those sorts of things. An active presence. Residual hauntings are something entirely different in theory. Like a record being played over and over again. Imagine walking through the halls of an ancient castle, or you're strolling across the battlefield of Gettysburg. I want to do all those things. And suddenly you find yourself wrapped in echoes of the past. You can hear sounds of soldiers charging into battle, the whispers of long dead inhabitants. It's as if time itself has left a footprint. Now this is where it gets intriguing. Residual hauntings may have some sort of a scientific explanation. It's called the stone tape theory, and it's a theory that's eerie and fascinating. Let me explain what the stone tape theory is, how it works in theory. Um, and to do so, I'll use magnetic recording tape. You remember cassettes and those of us old enough remember reel-to-reels. Of course. I have rewound with a pencil many a time. Oh my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> Or, or I would fix a twisted tape. Yeah. I'd pull it all the way out and then rewind it back in with a pencil. Magnetic recording tape. The process is pretty simple. Magnetic recording tape, it's like, like a cassette, works by encoding information, sound or video, onto a tape through a process of magnetization. The tape is coated with tiny magnetic particles. And during the recording, these particles are magnetized in a pattern that corresponds to the sound or the visual signal that it's, that it's being exposed to. The playback process is when the tape passes over a playback head that detects these magnetic patterns and converts them back to the original audio or video signal. In the stone tape theory, the recording of events, it's theorized that certain materials like stone, especially those that uh, are, are highly magnetic, can somehow record emotional or traumatic events. It's not a physical process like magnetic recording, but rather energy imprinting on the storage. If there is a large, sudden outburst of emotion mm -hmm. or energy, the theory is that it can imprint itself on certain types of materials. I think that makes sense. Now, just as a tape head can read the magnetic signals on the tape and convert them into audio or video, certain conditions or triggers, they call it, are believed to cause the playback of these recorded stone tape events. It could be weather conditions. It could be anniversaries of events when there are high emotional levels with many people focusing on it. Mm -hmm. Like, say, the anniversary of the first day of the Gettysburg Battle. Do you know what day that was? Uh, I think it was July 1st, uh, 1863. Oh, okay. Who was leading that battle? Well, Lee for the Confederates, and there were, there were several Union shut up. Anyway, Joshua Chamberlain was, was the big hero for the... Uh, Battle of the Little Round Top. Woot woot! Joshua Chamberlain, in case you didn't know, from Maine. So let's say it's July 1st, and you're there for the anniversary of the first day of the Gettysburg Battle. There are thousands of other people mm -hmm. that are there. Uh, they're all focused on this event emotionally. They're all thinking about it. They're releasing energy. It's a coordinated energy burst. Then you've got the reenactors mm -hmm. who are recreating very realistically, Feeling what took those place. Emotions. Exactly. That 
could be a trigger in this theory that would cause some sort of a uh, stone tape playback. The idea is the intense human emotions and events can imprint themselves onto the environment like a recording, and usually it's moments of high drama or deep sorrow. The idea gained traction in the 1970s largely largely thanks to a British television play titled The Stone Tape, which was penned by Nigel Neal. In this narrative, a group of scientists discover a haunted room in an old mansion that can record the past and reveal it to the living. So the name of the play was The Stone Tape. Got it. Were there a lot of stones in that haunted room, Nigel? I suppose we don't have to get into the ins and outs of the play. That's fine. The Battle of Gettysburg, if you want to know the specifics, was July 1st through July 3rd, 1863. It resulted in a huge number of casualties. The total number of casualties at the Battle of Gettysburg between, it was between, and this is a three-day period, between 46,000 and 51,000 soldiers from both the Union and Confederate armies. Union casualties were reported at 23,000, roughly, and it was estimated about 28,000 Confederate casualties that included soldiers who were killed, wounded, captured, or just missing. Visitors and paranormal investigators have reported hearing the sounds of gunfire, uh, cannon blasts, even the agonized cries of soldiers. And these experiences are often described as being eerily clear, but somehow distant, like a faded memory playing out before an unseen audience. Now, of course, those who are into the stone tape theory argue that the intense emotions and the violence experienced during the battle left an indelible mark on the environment. And that allows these things to be replayed for modern day witnesses. Did I show you that video of the tree line along mm -hmm. one of the battlefields? Oh, yeah. You've shown it to me a couple times now. That's a remarkable piece of footage. Because it looks like soldiers walking, but they're flickering in and out mm. of existence. And they're about 10 feet off the ground, walking in, not just in front of treetops, but behind them. And it's, it's really weird. It is weird. There are a lot of reported incidents at uh, Gettysburg College, which is located close by to the battlefield. It has its own set of ghostly legends and tales, contributing to the area's reputation as one of the most haunted in the U.S., the college has been the site of numerous reports of paranormal activity and, again, residual ones, things that seem to play back over and over again. Mm. One of the most famous and enduring stories from Gettysburg College involves the apparition of a Confederate sentry. It's said that his uh, ghostly figure can be seen in the cupola of Pennsylvania Hall, which is one of the oldest buildings on campus and served as a lookout and signal station during the Battle of Gettysburg. And he just Stands appears. Guard. Yep, appears from time to time. He's described as a ghostly soldier in, a con in Confederate attire, and he's just standing watch. The sentry's not described as ever interacting with observers, and that, of course, aligns more with the concept of residual haunting. But he just stands there and doesn't do anything. Uh, there is a, another well-known story from Gettysburg College that's far more horrifying. And it's centered around an elevator in Pennsylvania Hall. Is it an Otis elevator? I'm not sure of the manufacturer's name, but uh, and I don't even know if it was there during the Civil War. But it's there now. And this building is rich with history. And it's known as the Old Dorm. 
And during the Battle of Gettysburg, it was used as a field hospital for both the Union and the Confederate soldiers. The story goes this way, that rather than going to the, you get, you get in the elevator, and rather than going to its intended destination, sometimes it takes passengers directly past it and down into the basement. Oof. The doors open, and upon arrival, a horrific and gruesome scene is revealed. It's a makeshift Civil War-era hospital with ghostly figures seen performing surgery on wounded soldiers. There's chaos. There are bloody limbs lying all over the floor. There's screaming. It's just, it's a horrifying sight. And this vision is said to be so detailed and vivid that it's as if one has stepped back into time. After a few moments, the scene starts to fade, and then it vanishes, and then the elevator resumes functioning normally. I'd get that looked at. But really, any old structure, especially made out of stone, that has seen some high emotional impact, like ancient castles in Europe with all of the centuries of history, they're another hotbed for purported uh, stone tape phenomenon. (laughs) Take, for example, God, the Tower of London. Now, today it's a tourist attraction. But it's also reported to be a vault of historical echoes. Visitors have reported hearing whispers of plots long since foiled and seeing fleeting shadows of former prisoners. Now, again, this theory hinges on a few key things. An emotional charge. It's believed that a high-intensity event like battles or murder are likely to leave the mark. The material... Certain materials, especially those with crystalline structure, like quartz, are often thought to be more capable of recording the events. And then the theory suggests that there needs to be some sort of trigger condition, uh, whether it's people all focusing on it or maybe certain weather conditions for it in in order for it to uh, play back. It's also been witnessed to occur in the presence of certain individuals. Oh, like a certain person's energy can set it off? Yeah, and maybe that's because... Okay, like you often hear about people seeing, oh, I, I saw my uh, my grandfather. He had been dead for years and years, but he was out there hoeing the field. Maybe because you have a deeper emotional connection mm-hmm. to that because he's a relative, you could trigger that type of uh, stone tape playback. But whether you believe in the stone tape theory or not, it's... It's an important part of popular culture and certainly paranormal studies. Uh, There's a lot of uh, scientific experimentation going on with this. It's inspired countless ghost stories, films, and investigations. I think it's one of the more plausible explanations for this type of activity. I do, too. You know, I don't always get on board with a lot of what you say, Mm -hmm. Um, but this... (laughs) Scientifically, scientifically makes a lot of sense to me. Well, we use the word echo, and that's a pretty accurate description. I remember as a kid, we had a camp on a lake in Maine. Right across the lake was uh, a, a, a mountain, and you could holler, and two seconds later, it would come back to you. And I look at it like that. If that's possible, and we know magnetic recording tape is possible then this certainly can be possible as well. My source information, The Stone Tape, A Paranormal Theory by Nigel Neal. Ghostly Encounters, The Haunting of Everyday Life by Avery Gordon. 
Gettysburg Ghosts, A Study in Historical Hauntings by Mark Nesbitt. I've read a couple of his books. He is really good. He's a former park ranger that for years and years and years worked at Gettysburg and uh, compiled all of these events that not only did he witness, but his co-workers and, and people he knew witnessed as well. Echoes of History, a Physical Study of Residual Hauntings by Peter Underwood, and The Tower of London, a Haunted History by Jeffrey Parnell. We use stones and minerals to interact with modern machinery all the time. Silica and silicon. Silicon's used in solar panels. That captures solar energy, and then and then we're able to you know, take that back. So, I mean... Yeah, why not? Why not? Titanium, semiconductors. Well, you mentioned silicon, a computer chip. Right. That plays back some shit. So I do, I agree. I I, I really think there's a, a strong scientific basis mm. for the possibility of this being an explanation for residual hauntings. Or uh, it could be ergot. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you interested in the parts of history that remain a mystery? Do you want to learn more about the historical myths and misconceptions used to prop up false belief today? I'm Nathaniel Lloyd. In my podcast, Historical Blindness, I delve into all of these topics, sharing puzzling tales from the past and examining hoaxes, conspiracy theories, and misremembered events that provide insight into modern politics and religion. Find out what's real and what's not when it comes to famous conspiracy theories, like those surrounding notorious assassinations and secret societies. Discover the weak and deceptive underpinnings of modern political ideologies and religious beliefs. Join me as I attempt to shed some light on our historical blind spots. New episodes every two weeks. Find historical blindness on most podcast players and platforms. from the Cleveland Herald, April 16, 1891. Cleveland Herald sounds like a name for a really goofy mobster. <laughs> Not very threatening at all. Yeah, or a dirty sex move. <laughs> <laughs> anyway you ever tried the cleveland herald know I, what i mean eh, huh? nudge nudge huh? wink wink say no more a description of the discovery as told by the discoverer the hoopers of the ninth district was in town last saturday and exhibited some of the stones from the alleged burial wall near hooper's mill the stones bear some strange markings which are thought to be hieroglyphs 
cut on them by some lost race who built the wall long before any white man lived on this continent. Hmm. The wall was originally almost completely buried. It attracted attention only because its course was marked on the surface by stones projecting from the ground every 25 to 30 feet over a gently curving arc about 1,000 feet long. Wow. More from the Cleveland Herald. Mr. Hooper states that he dug down through the wall a distance of about eight feet. He says the wall is about two and a half feet thick and is built of stones pretty uniform in size, about two feet square and ten inches thick. The stones are set on edge and cemented together, the joints being broke after the manner of the brick wall. There are three tiers of stone in the wall, and the strange characters appear only on the west face of the middle tier, Hmm. where they are hid and protected by the outside tier. This basically is saying that the wall-like structure was seemingly cemented together by a mortar-like substance. Splitting the sandstone sheets revealed the diagonal rows of markings. Okay, so these characters, according to the Cleveland Herald are found only in one section of the wall, about eight feet in length, and do not appear anywhere else where the wall has been examined. Chitata, which means clear water, is the original Cherokee name for an area in Bradley County, Tennessee. The name is used in reference to various locations in the county, including Chitata Valley and the former community of Tasso. Excavations at Hooper Mill, initially supported by the Smithsonian Institution, uncovered this mysterious wall structure with hieroglyphic-like inscriptions. Dr. J. Hampton Porter from the Smithsonian Institute examined these inscriptions in Chittata in 1891, noting various symbols and animal forms resembling both Old World alphabets and recognized Indian symbology. It reminds me of Billy Crystal when he said he had a theory that uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs were just comic strips about a character named Sphinxy. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that. <laughs> Sphinxy. The discovery, of course, raised intriguing questions. And it would have remained untold if not for A.L. Rawson, a prominent New York professor who visited Cleveland a year later. While staying at a hotel there, he overheard talk of the discovery and decided to extend his stay to visit Hooper Farm. After examining the wall, he was eager to decipher the inscriptions. I'll bet. He enlisted the help of skilled cipher experts, and an expenditure of $35,000 later, the hieroglyphics were identified as ancient Hebrew. Wow. Containing religious and historical content written by scribes of a nation facing extinction due to war. Rosen's findings were published in the Transactions of the New York Academy of Sciences that year and suggested similarities with the Dighton Rock inscriptions in Massachusetts, hinting a shared historical age. He believed the wall, emerging after being buried for over 4,000 years, Shut up! gradually revealed itself as a protective layer of earth was eroded. Rawson aimed to fully expose the wall on the inscribed ridge, also identifying nearby pottery and stone artifacts, which he also said were inscribed with Hebrew, connecting them to the narrative of the two lost tribes of Israel. Wow. He suspected and speculated that these tribes might have migrated to America through the Bering Strait, 
considering geographical changes over the millennia. And this was 4,000 years ago. He's hypothesizing. Mm. Yeah, and I imagine the Bering Strait looked a lot different then. Indeed. Now, this uncovery, of course, attracted historians and anthropologists from various countries, New Zealand, Japan, Italy, France, Spain, and Cuba. They all visited Hooper Farm. Again, from the Cleveland Herald, December 3, 1920. On the farm of J.L. Hooper in Bradley County, seven miles southwest of Charleston, Tennessee, and 12 miles west of Cleveland, an ancient stone wall has been brought to light, disclosing what New York scientists believe to be the key to the two lost tribes of Israel. It continues, there appears to be nothing unusual about the tract of land, except that at one point, a stone shaped like a flat iron stood above the surface of the ground. It was covered with strange characters that aroused nothing more than a casual interest among the country folk, none of whom understood the characters or thought very seriously of them. Silly farm folk. Yeah, farm folk are silly. The Smithsonian Institute actually displayed a small smeg- smegment. <laughs> ah. I bet they're lining up to see that. <clears throat> a small segment, one foot by one foot, roughly, of the wall from 1900 to 1902, when it was returned to the owner because there was a question as to whether the markings constituted an inscription. And that question over the years has become an assertion. It's thought today that it's more likely the markings were made by mollusks. Mollusks. Mollusks knew ancient Hebrew. The confusion between the marks of mollusks and hieroglyphs may arise due to superficial similarities such as intricate patterns or grooves. If the mollusk marks have a naturally occurring irregular design, it might be misinterpreted as intentional writing. Well, was he able to decipher any of these mollusk hieroglyphics? Yeah. I mean, they were talking about the ancient tribes facing the end of their civilization. Those are some smart mollusks. In some cases, the observer's subjective interpretation and a desire to find significance could contribute to the confusion between these natural formations <laughs> and deliberately crafted symbols. A couple thousand years ago, a few mollusks sitting around. What do you want to do today? I don't know. Let's carve the Torah. Moreover, environmental elements such as erosion and natural deterioration can contribute to the fading boundaries between imprints made by mollusks and man-made hieroglyphs. The circumstances surrounding the unearthing of the markings, coupled with the observer's personal background and preconceptions, may impact how natural characteristics are perceived and possibly mistaken for deliberate inscriptions. This highlights the critical significance of thorough examination and specialized knowledge in discerning between geological structures and culturally significant relics. Of course, as we've discussed, the human brain is naturally wired to recognize patterns in the world around us. And that's been crucial for our survival. And of course, it's, it's important that we be able to do that. Unfortunately, the tendency to find patterns can sometimes lead to misinterpretations. But he was able to decipher words. Or seeing connections where none exist. I don't know. It seems harder for me to believe 
that mollusks did that than... Hebrews who crossed the Bering Strait and made their way to a rando yeah, yeah, yeah. farm in Tennessee. Sh- and- no, it was, it was, was it Tennessee? Yeah. Okay. It was the Cleveland Herald that did the story. Okay. Yeah. No, I think, uh, I think that's far more likely than a bunch of mollusks with chisels. They don't even have arms, let alone opposable thumbs. How the hell are they going to do that? In archaeology, anthropology, and other fields, of course, this inclination to detect patterns can lead to misinterpretations of natural formations as intentional artifacts or inscriptions. And in order to mitigate these errors, critical thinking, rigorous analysis, and awareness of the brain's predisposition to find patterns are essential. No, I get all that. It just seems more likely to me that somebody in academia who doesn't like the idea of disrupting our common beliefs in how things happen throughout history uh, had to come up with some kind of an explanation. So he he said, okay, swamp gas is out. Um, tell them shellfish did it. They'll believe that. Mollusks my ass. <laughs> Anyway, I guess we'll have to agree to disagree about uh, Hebrews versus mollusks. Mm -hmm. I got my information from the aforementioned sources and Steam It, The Futility Closet, Science Frontiers, and Saint.com. So you're telling me that two of the sources that you got this information from, the Cleveland Herald and Steam It? (laughs) Okay. And now... That thing in the middle. Ah, the world is full of mysteries, curiosities, and oddities. Yeah, I've heard that. I once heard somebody say. And uh, so we thought the thing in the middle today, just some really bizarre, random facts from around the world. Number five. Australia is wider than the diameter of the moon. That doesn't even make sense. No. According to this, it's impossible for most people to lick their own elbows. Um, I've never tried, but I, I, I think like I, I think I could. I think a lot of people are trying right now. Okay, everybody else try. Uh, uh, no, mm, I can come close, but no. Sadly, I'm one of those who can't lick their own elbow. I'll lick yours though, sweetie, if you'd like. No, thank you. Sloths can hold their breath for longer than a dolphin can. Holy crap! Sloths are so amazing. I saw my first sloth like in person not long ago, and they're just as sweet and cute and delightful as you would imagine. I wanted to scritch him, but the biological park said no. (laughs) They do have rules. They're anti-sloth scritching. Number two, Buzz Aldrin, the astronaut, the first man to ever pee on the moon. How? Well, I'm fairly certain it was some sort of tubing and bladder device that they had built into the suit. Yeah, I don't think he unzipped and just peed on the lander. (laughs) That would have been cool. And number one, bananas are berries. Get over it. Yeah. And now, today's highlight in history. On this date, somewhere in the world, some woman or man said something and Some shit went down. Man, we loves us some history. This is The Box of Oddities. 
One of my favorite film series, and I know it's one of yours too, is The Matrix. And uh, one of the things I love about it are the many layers of, of meaning in The Matrix series. And I'm a sucker for existential philosophy. And uh, The Matrix does draw on that, particularly the works of philosophers like Jean-Paul Sartre. Sartre? Sartre? Oh, God. Yeah. I'm getting into it. That doesn't sound good at all. Jean-Paul Sartre. Oh, God. Sartre. Jean-Paul Sartre. (laughs) And Albert Camsu. Oh, that's so much better. Yeah. The the characters in The Matrix grapple with questions about free will and choice and the search for meaning in a seemingly deterministic world. And Neo's journey to break free from The Matrix is a quest of individuality and self-determination. And the film's creators did incorporate various philosophical and religious themes into the story, which can be connected to mythological and philosophical concepts. As well as Lewis Carroll themes. Yeah, through the looking glass. Neo, or Mr. Anderson, if you will, represents the Chosen One, a messianic figure who is destined to liberate humanity from the illusion of the Matrix. His journey can be seen as a parallel to the hero's quest in mythology. Right. Morpheus, he was just named after the Greek god of dreams, and he's the guy who helps Neo awaken from the dreamlike state of the Matrix. Trinity, Neo's love interest, was a skilled hacker, Uh, Her name alludes to the Christian concept of the Holy Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, possibly representing a spiritual aspect. The architect, of course, is a creator figure who designed the Matrix, while not directly tied to mythology. He represents the idea of a higher power or a deity controlling artificial reality. Right. A Ted Danson figure. (laughs) I missed the good place. And then there's the Oracle. The Oracle serves as a mysterious figure who provides guidance and prophecies to Neo. And it is based particularly on the Oracle of Delphi. Really, all of the oracles of Greek mythology, but particularly the Oracle of Delphi. The contexts are quite different. Like in the film, the Oracle is a wise figure who provides guidance. Played by one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen. Very similar to the Pythia, the high priestess at Delphi. The Oracle in The Matrix speaks in riddles and offers prophecies that are not very straightforward, leaving room for interpretation. And uh, that was the same with the Pythia. And despite the uh, Oracle in The Matrix being a more modern and technologically rooted version, the essence of her role as a catalyst for self-discovery and for the unfolding of the story remains a very common thread with the ancient Pythia of Delphi. I was going to do a whole thing about the characters in The Matrix and what they're compared to, but I ended up going down a rabbit hole. As did Neo. (laughs) While researching this. And found out something about the Oracle of Delphi that amazes me. Okay. Let's start with the beginning. Delphi. This sanctuary was originally dedicated to Apollo, the Greek god of prophecy. Delphi's oracle was the most venerated in the ancient world, drawing seekers from all over, from far and wide, all eager for a glimpse into the future. Now, the heart of Delphi's mystique was the Pythia a high priestess who served as Apollo's mouthpiece. Uh, Seated on a tripod, she would utter prophecies in um, a state of altered reality. She would go into a trance 
And between the 8th and 4th century BCE, her influence peaked. Kings and commoners alike sought her guidance, shaping wars, colonial ventures, and crucial political moves. They would consult with the Pythia before they would make any major world-changing or history-changing decisions. I vaguely remember something like in the 300, where in Sparta, they went to the hill to Mm. seek the guidance of someone. And that sounds very right. I haven't seen that for a long time, but that does sound right. You should watch it. Now at Delphi, let me paint the picture. The air would be heavy with the scent of laurel. Major decisions of the ancient world were often based on the rituals enacted within the walls. To step inside Delphi was to walk into a space where the veil between the human and the divine seemed to be whisper thin. And at its center stood the temple, a place where man sought knowledge beyond the boundaries of reality. Access to the Pythia was a sacred privilege. Seekers of her vision would undergo a ritual purification. They would sacrifice laurel leaves and barley to the flames on the altar. Then a goat would be presented to Apollo. Mm. You're not going to mind this this ritual, I promise you. They would sprinkle water on the goat. And if the goat trembled at the touch of water, it was seen as a sign that the gods were willing to communicate. Oh, okay. So they were giving him a bath, a little, little scrubby scrub. Nice. So on the sacred seventh day, when the sun cast a golden glow on the temple's marble, the inquirer would present their question, which was often dis- uh, inscribed on lead tablets to the priests. And these intermediaries of the divine would then take those tablets or words to the Pythia. And she was waiting in her chamber. And this was at the heart of Delphi. It was a small, enclosed room sealed off from the rest of the world. Here, the Pythia would enter her trance, and her words would become the voice of Apollo. But like in the Matrix, the words of the Pythia were never plain. They were often riddled with hidden meanings. The prophecies required wise interpretation. And the priests of Apollo would ponder her cryptic verses, translating the divine will into answers that could be carried out back into the world of men. One of the most famous prophecies attributed to the Pythia was given to King Croesus of Lydia. Croesus, who was, he was thinking about how maybe he could uh, expand his empire and kill a bunch of people and take their land. He was thinking about going to war with the Persian Empire. And so he consulted the Oracle of Delphi to inquire the outcome of a potential conflict. Yeah, and did he get it all ironed out? <laughs> the Pythia's response was... Creases. Yeah, creases. <clears throat> Her response was this, if you cross the river, a great empire will be destroyed. He interpreted the oracle's words to mean that he would succeed in destroying the Persian Empire. Mm. Croesus initiated the war. However, the prophecy was ambiguous and ultimately revealed its double meaning. It was not the Persian Empire that would fall, but King Croesus. King Croesus. See, it was his preconceptions about that entanglement mm-hmm. that led to his assessment. Ah. Uh, See? Uh-huh. 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 Right? Mollusks. Yep. Mollusks. But here's the part that blew my mind. The Oracle of Delphi might have been influenced by naturally occurring hallucinogens. <laughs> this, this theory is based on the idea that the Pythia, the high priestess uh, who served as the Oracle, was exposed 
to gases that induced a trance-like state. Uh, this theory has been supported by various studies and research. The Pythia was known to deliver prophecies in a small enclosed chamber in the basement of the temple. It's been said that vapors would come from a crevice, and it suggested that she would have been exposed to concentrations of narcotic gas that were strong enough to induce a trance. One of the gases identified is ethylene, a hydrocarbon that has a sweet smell and produces a narcotic effect described as a floating or disembodied sensation. Ethylene inhalation has been considered a serious contender for explaining the trances and, and the behavior of the, of the Pythia. But this theory has been challenged. Some researchers argue that a single cocktail of carbon dioxide mixed with methane could have induced trances. They suggest that the toxicity problems were due to a deficit of oxygen in the temple room where air ventilation was weak and the gas released from the soil was strong. Methane was found in spring waters around the site, leading to the hypothesis that the Pythias were drugged by a combination of these gases. Despite the debates, it's generally agreed that the Pythia was under the influence of some form of intoxicating substance, whether it was ethylene, methane, carbon dioxide, or a combination of any of those. The exact nature of the substance and the mechanism by which it influenced the Pythia's prophecies remain subject to ongoing research and discussions. So in conclusion, it appears that many of the ancient world's major history-changing decisions may have been made based on information obtained from some chick trippin' balls. The end. The sources for my story came from National Geographic and LiveScience.com. Once again, I find myself asking you this question, what you got for me. In 2005, Dr. Sarah Salon and Eileen Soloway successfully germinated a 2,000-year-old date palm seed. Wow. The ancient seed was excavated from the ancient fortress of Masada in Israel. Eileen Soloway, a horticulturist, collaborated with Dr. Sarah Salon on the project. The germination in the ancient date palm seed, nicknamed Methuselah, marked a significant milestone in botanical history. The resulting date palm tree grew in the Areva Institute for Environmental Studies in Israel. 2,000 years old. 2,000 years old. Holy crap. I know. This project showcased the resilience of certain plant species and offered a glimpse into the past, shedding light on ancient cultivation techniques and genetic preservation. This remarkable achievement provided insights into agriculture and garnered attention for its potential implications in preserving biodiversity. At the time, it was the oldest resurrected plant, and it stayed that way until 2012. When scientists, likely conducting research or exploration in the eastern region of Siberia, known for its permafrost, discovered seeds. The seeds may have been part of a broader effort to study ancient plant and animal remains preserved in the permafrost, offering insights into the region's ecological history and for the potential of reviving ancient life forms. The seeds that we're going to be talking about today specifically were excavated in northeastern Siberia from fossil squirrel burrows <laughs> buried in undisturbed and never thawed late Pleistocene permafrost sediments. Wow. 
with an average temperature of seven below zero Celsius. Mature and immature seeds of the Xylene stenophylla of the Campion family encased in ice were found 124 feet or 38 meters below the permafrost. While the mature seeds were damaged, probably by the squirrels, (laughs) (laughs) and that prevented germination, some immature seeds contained viable plant material. The team extracted the tissue, initiating plant growth by placing it in vials. The Institute of Cell Biophysics successfully cultivated Silene stenophylla, the oldest plant material ever revived, as noted in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Does it still exist today in a modern form? Types of it. Types, okay. Now, of course, dormancy enables seeds to endure, aiding dispersal and ensuring survival in varying conditions, although over time, seeds do lose viability and impacts their ability to germinate and grow. Now, the leader of the research team, Professor David Gilchinsky, died a few days before his paper was published. But in it, he and his colleagues described finding about 70 squirrel hibernation burrows in the riverbank. All the burrows, it's noted in this paper, were found at depths of 20 to 40 meters from the present-day surface and located in layers containing bones of large mammals, such as mammoth, woolly rhinoceros, bison, horse, deer, and other representatives of fauna from the age of mammoths, as well as plant remains. The presence of vertical ice wedges demonstrates that it had been continuously frozen and never thawed. Accordingly, the fossil burrows and their content have never been defrosted since burial 32,000 years ago. Holy crap. The squirrels appear to have stashed their store in the coldest part of the burrow, which subsequently froze permanently. Research comparing plants grown from modern seeds and those regenerated from the same species in the same area Mm -hmm. show that they displayed distinct characteristics. Although the regenerated plants were identical to each other, they exhibited different flower shapes from the modern version of this plant. And these plants grew, flowered, and produced their own seeds within a year. Oh, wow. 32,000 years. The implications of that, staggering. It's wild. Let's just hope in their thawing of the uh, permafrost, they don't release any ancient viruses that we don't have any immunities to. Fingers crossed. Certainly some of the plants that were cultivated in ancient ancient times. (laughs) Ancient times. Ancient times that have gone extinct or other plants once important to ecosystems which have disappeared would be very useful today if they could be brought back, said Eileen Soloway. You may remember Eileen Soloway resurrected the 2,000-year-old date palm, previously holding the title of oldest regenerated seed. But that was only 2,000 years old, and this one's 32,000 years old. It's insane. Blowing away records. Learning about the viability of old seeds and the environment in which they were found is crucial for so many reasons. It provides insight into the historical plant species and the conditions under which they thrived, and that helps our understanding of past ecosystems. It also offers potential knowledge of how plants may adapt to environmental changes, and that's valuable for conservation and agricultural practices in the face of modern environmental challenges. Also, studying old seeds can reveal information about genetic diversity, potential adaptations, and the evolutionary process, all of which are essential 
for understanding the resilience and survival of plant species. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, wow. That reminds me, of, we were talking about this a couple of years ago. They found some ancient Egyptian pottery, and inside there were remnants of ancient Egyptian bread, and they were able to test that and determine that it was made from a type of grain that was no longer around. Right. Somehow they were able to bring that back to life and actually bake a loaf of bread with the exact same grain and the exact same ingredients that they were able to determine the original was baked from by scraping off the inside of this ancient pot. That's so wild. Do you remember what they said about the bread? If it was like good or stodgy? Was it stodgy, sweetie? It wasn't a good bike. <laughs> and I think we're all interested in what is no longer available to us and might be available to us again. Anything like that where you can reach back through the millennia and touch history, I'm for. I got my information from National Geographic, from the India Times, NPAS, and the BBC. Hey, before you know it, it's going to be another episode of Freak Family Favorites. This is when you record yourself telling us about your favorite episode or favorite story from the Box of Oddities and why. In other words, you'll be the guest host. Record your intro on your smartphone and email it to us. It really is just that easy. Mm -hmm. Curator at theboxofoddities.com. We'll see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the Box of Oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2024. All rights reserved. Because I've been watching so much House, so much of my Google history is medical questions. What is pulmonary edema? Was under the influence of some sort of... Holy f***ing shit.